read, I'm going to read Exodus chapter 25, uh, starting with verse 10, going through verse 22. This is God's word. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side of it, two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and the one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another towards the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Would you pray with me one more time and ask God's blessing on his word preached today? Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, you're our hiding place, a firm refuge from the wrath of God. You are our king. There are things that need to be conquered in us. And so by your word, take out your sword and defeat sin in our lives. You're our prophet. And so with great power, transform us. Would all of us leave here today saying, Jesus did something in me by his word. We want to hear your voice. So we humble ourselves before you and ask you to work by your spirit. Amen. Well, um, I think this is true about most of us. I know it's true about me that um, just generally our God is too small. Um, often, most of us, the way we perceive God is often just an, maybe a, an extension of ourselves. We like G.K. Chesterton famously said, God made us in his image and we have been returning the favor ever since. No matter how you think of God, uh, we just generally in our hearts want him to be a little safer, a little more manageable, a little more domesticated, a wild God that has his way with the world and with us who cannot be tamed or domesticated makes us a little uncomfortable. So we're studying the tabernacle. We find ourselves, if you're visiting with us, we regularly work through books of the Bible because that's how God has given us his word. And so we just try to work ourselves through his word in that way. And 
we've stopped here to study the tabernacle, um, which is the house of God. He's, Moses is up on Mount Sinai for 40 days, and God is giving him these detailed blueprints. One of the things that should have struck you if you're visiting with us this morning is just the detail of this passage, right? It kind of goes on and on and on, and you're wondering, where is this going? What's the point? Well, God is building a house. It's one of the reasons it's so detailed is he is building a house where he will dwell with his people. But this particular house is designed with all of these details to communicate two things. This is who God is. This is the mission that he's on in the world. Throughout the book of Exodus, we have found, and we see it here again as we study the tabernacle, we have found that the most fundamental attribute of God the, most, the thing that is most true about him is that he is holy. Whatever you say about God has to be modified by the fact that he is holy. God is love, John tells us in 1 John. But his love is a holy love. His wrath is a holy wrath. His grace is a holy grace. The thing that over and over again gets repeated um, in in visual form, in word form, in interaction form, when people approach God, fear of his holiness confronts them. And the house that God is instructing Moses to build reflects this most fundamental attribute of God, that he, though with his people, is holy. Now, that's kind of a religious word, you know, some of you probably have a conception of what that means. And you think, particularly in the tabernacle, one of the things that's being portrayed about God is that his holiness is like the sun, right? The sun is, is life-giving as long as you stay at a distance. But if you get too close to the sun um, and all of its power and all of its glory, the closer you get, the more dangerous it becomes. The center of the sun too close will consume and burn up. And so the tabernacle is designed this way when coming into confrontation with God's holiness, there were graded courts. There was an outer court. There was the nation of Israel gathered around on the far outsides of the court. There was an inner court. um, And then there was the tabernacle structure itself. And then within the tabernacle, it was divided into two rooms. And when you got to the center God dwelt there. At the heart of the tabernacle was the room, 15 cubits wide by 15 cubits tall by 15 cubits deep, a perfect cube where God in his glory dwelt. It was the most holy place. And the most holy place had one piece of furniture in it. We'll remember from last week that inside of the tabernacle, All of the furniture was designed by God to communicate two things. This is who I am. This is the mission I'm on in the world. And at the center of that was the Ark of the Covenant. That was our reading just now from Exodus chapter 25. The blueprints that that Moses is given by God on Mount Sinai... Um, we have started from the outside coming in. So we, have, we sort of approached the tabernacle like this is what you would see as an Israelite as you would approach it. We started from the outside coming in. But God 
in describing his blueprints for the tabernacle in Exodus 25 starts with the most holy place in the Ark of the Covenant because it was the most important piece of furniture. Now, as I said last week, as you think about the Ark of the Covenant, forget about everything that you picked up from Raiders of the Lost Ark. In the movie, the Ark of the Covenant is shrouded in mystery, um, like it in of itself is a magical box um, that uh, had magical powers. Well, the Ark did look like a box. It was designed to be a hollow box made out of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. Um, the box itself wasn't huge. It was about two, it was two and a half cubits long by a cubit and a half wide and a cubit and a half tall, roughly four feet by three feet by three feet. Then the acacia wood was covered with gold. It was hollow on the inside and it was designed to look like the ancient um, footstool of a king. It was representative of the fact that God was dwelling here with his people. We'll get back to that in just a second. So here you have this box, four feet by three feet, overlaid with gold. And on the top of the box was another piece called the mercy seat or the atonement cover, your translation might read. It was made out of pure gold with two winged angelic creatures called cherubim on the top. Inside of the box laid the two tablets on which God had engraved the Ten Commandments, and then later a jar with manna in it and Aaron's staff. And since this was where God's kingly presence dwelt, it was guarded by cherubim. Cherubim were woven into the veil that acted as a door to the most holy place. It was cherubim were woven in the ceiling, in the walls, everywhere you looked, hammered gold cherubim on the cover of the seat. Now, I had asked a few people this week, what do you think of when you hear the word cherub? Little baby, you know, sitting angelically with his blonde hair, blue eyes, cute, curly, and tame. That's not a cherub. The cherubs were angel warriors, that guarded the holy presence of God from the infiltration of sin. They're always depicted as the throne room guardians of God's presence. Psalm 99.1, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Not a tame God, it's a God to be feared. Ezekiel has a vision of God's throne. And he sees a chariot flaming with fire and wheels on it, going to and fro around all the world, symbolizing God's fiery presence in his kingly splendor everywhere. And the throne of God as it was moving through the world had cherubim tending to it, who would reach inside and take out fiery coals of God's judgment and pour them out on sinful humanity. In fact, when Adam and Eve sin, God exiles them from the garden and to 
cherubim are placed at the entrance holding flaming swords to guard God's holy presence from the infiltration of sin. Finally, the ark had an interesting feature as well. It had poles. Most of the furniture in the tabernacle had poles. The tabernacle was a tent. It was a mobile structure. When Israel moved, God moved with Israel. And so the furniture had to be carried. But the poles would be removed and set down to the ground, except for the Ark of the Covenant. And we're told explicitly that the poles shall never be removed because it will never be touched by human hands. Poles at the feet so they could carry it around because the ark was where God specially dwelt in all of his glory and splendor. It was like the sun. Whenever a holy God is touched by anything less holy than him, less perfect, less pure than him, his holiness consumes whatever is touched by him. Whatever comes in contact with a holy God is either cleansed from sin or consumed by God's holiness. In fact, one time Israel uses the ark like the magic box that you saw in Raiders of the Lost Ark. They thought the box itself was magical and so they took it into battle expecting God just to defeat the enemies because the ark was there. Well, the ark was only symbolic of his presence. It had no powers in and of itself. And Israel lost the battle. They were presuming that they could just manage God and his things and make him do their bidding. And so God gives them over to their enemies. And then God displays his holiness to the Philistines. And the Philistines get freaked out. And they send the ark back. And David wants to bring the ark back to Jerusalem, the royal city. And so the Israelites put it on an ox cart. They're supposed to be carrying it. This was step one in their mishandling of the ark. They're supposed to be carrying it, but they put it in an ox cart. The ox cart hits a pothole in ancient Israel and tumbles, and the ark begins to fall. And so Uzzah reaches out his hand to touch it and immediately, immediately is consumed by the holiness of God and dies. And his fatal flaw is to think that that ground is worse than the sinfulness of my being. It's not the filth of the ground that will confront God's holiness. That when sin and God's holiness meet, either sin is consumed or one is made as holy as God is holy. The ark was designed to look like the footstool of a king, as I had said before. Children, you can picture a king sitting on a giant throne, right? And a king on a giant throne is kind of like you sitting on one of those pews. They're a little too tall, and so some people have made little footstools for you to put your feet on. Well, a king in the ancient Near East wouldn't just sit on a really pretty chair. He would sit on a giant throne to make himself look really, really important but a giant, a, a small king on a giant throne looks kind of funny because his feet are just dangling off. And so he needs a footstool to rest his feet on. And that's what the ark functioned as in the tabernacle. This was where God, the king, was dwelling. 
And you get the picture from Isaiah chapter 66. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. It was the special place where God dwelt. Not just a unique place, but where God, who is tended to by the warrior cherubim, dwells. And where God the king dwells, now we're moving into his mission. Where God the holy king dwells, he is using all of his awe-inspiring power to bear on putting a broken world back together again. God was here. And the function of the ark and the the covenant history of Israel was to illustrate that God the king fights for his people in all of his glorious power, in all of his holiness. He's cleansing the world from sin by fighting back our enemies. And so when Israel rose from camp. The Ark of the Covenant was the first thing that that left the encampment. God was leading his people. And this is what the Israelites sang. Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. The king is on the move. When Israel got to the edge of the promised land after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, they faced one last boundary before they entered into the new creation of the promised land, the waters of the Jordan River were in springtime and were raging because of the snow melt and the rains until God the King in all of his splendor and majesty and power being carried, this footstool being carried by the priest touched the waters and the Jordan River piled up. At a distance, so Israel could walk through to the promised land on dry ground. Once they're in the promised land, they're faced with the great walled city of Jericho. And so God the king marches his footstool around the city, and the walls fall down, and the enemies are destroyed. Where God is present, he is present in all of his splendor and majesty and power, and he is fighting against his and our enemies. Now, God doesn't live in human temples anymore. He doesn't live in a, in a tent in the ancient Near East. He doesn't live in a, a building in Jerusalem. Here's the pattern where a holy God comes in contact with sin. Either his holiness deals with the sin or it consumes the sinner. And this is the good news of the gospel. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By faith in Jesus Christ, you have been cleansed so that God now takes up residence in you. You are now his new tabernacle. And where God is present and reigning He is bearing all of his glorious power to fight our enemies of sin and temptation. When we pray that kingdom come, we're praying that the warrior God who sits enthroned above the cherubim come and destroy the remaining sin in my life, the brokenness in my marriage and death and destruction around the world. Come, cleanse, please, God, warrior king who sits enthroned above the cherubim. Come, reign 
When we pray, deliver us from evil, we're imploring the warrior God who sits enthroned above the cherubim to bring the sword of his word and destroy the temptations of the evil one so that we are no longer rooted in our shame, but in his glorious love for us in Jesus Christ. I think too often we are too timid in the Christian life and we take a defeated posture. And it sounds, it sounds like this. I do this. I know I do this. It sounds so humble. Oh, I'm just a sinner. I, I can't help it. But what that confession of weakness really turns us to God, the warrior. That's confession. God, I am, I am a sinner, but I'm turning to you so that you would fight out the sin in my life. I am weak. You're strong. And so Come. You've taken up residence in me. I don't want to be this way anymore. Consume the remaining sin in my life and make me more like Jesus. Now, let's switch gears. There's a classic problem, I think, with the way that most of us, again, think about God. We either think of him as high and holy and therefore distant or we think of him as tame and near and friendly. And world religions swing across this pendulum. World history swings across this pendulum. Either a God who is high and holy and powerful and distant, or a God who's friendly and near and tame. The God of the Bible reveals himself. It's like, I'm neither of those extremes. Isaiah 57, 15. The God who says, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And this, both and, is captured in the tabernacle. The altar of incense is the last piece of furniture that we've not yet talked about. Technically, it resided in the holy place, just outside of the curtain of the most holy place. But as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, this really was a piece of furniture that functioned in the holy place. It was a miniature version of the bronze altar that was out in the courtyard where animal sacrifices were were, uh, were killed, blood was shed so that the people of God could come boldly into God's presence. It was made of gold, about 18 inches square and about three feet tall. It had horns on the corner like the bronze altar. And we had seen repeatedly this pattern with the tabernacle. God has approached through blood gives us access to him where we fellowship with him. That's the pattern of the tabernacle. Layers. You can enter God's holiness if you're cleansed from sin. Like other pieces of furniture, it too was made. The altar of incense was made out of acacia wood and then completely overlaid with gold. It had an ornamental molding, some type of ornamental molding around the top. It too had poles, rings, Poles so they could be carried when they would move. And this is the way it functioned. Twice a day, morning and evening, 
When the priests came into the holy place to tend to the wicks on the lampstand, they also poured fragrant incense on this altar, and it burned. Children, think of this as like a sweet-smelling perfume. God was making the room smell sweet by keeping incense burning every morning and every night. Now, its place was important. It stood right in front of the veil that separated the Ark of the Covenant and the most holy place. And, the, and it served two purposes. One is that it would veil the presence of God from the priest. We read this in Leviticus chapter 16. The priest is to take a full censer full of coals of the fire from the altar in the courtyard and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small Bring it inside the veil, put the incense on the fire before the Lord. A cloud of smoke would rise up and it would do this. Cover the mercy seat so that the priest would not die. You can't look on the face of God and live. Unless you're the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man. No one has seen God, Jesus says, but me. If we follow the story all the way to the end, we see that the altar of incense was concealing the holiness of God, but it had a very important other symbolic function. Remember the pattern. Blood gives us access to God, which gives us fellowship with Him. And if we follow all the way through, what we see in the book of Revelation is that the sweet incense that's floating into the holy place where God dwelt was symbolic of the prayers of his people. Revelation chapter 5, we get a picture of the activity that's going around God's throne room right now. And the people and the creatures that are gathered around God's throne are holding golden bowls, bowls full of incense. And he tells us explicitly, these are the prayers of the saints. Revelation chapter 8, same picture. Angels standing around God's throne, trumpets given to him. Another angel comes with a golden censer, picture of the image of the tabernacle, incense with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense is rising up. Do you see this picture? The holy place was only accessible by the priest with an elaborate ritual of blood and cleansing. But once they got inside, they pled for God's people. And the tabernacle is a replica, it's a shadow. Jesus has entered the most holy place, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood. Offered himself as a priest. We'll see next week. Offered himself as a priest with his own blood. And now... God's people, no matter what sin you bring to the table, aren't consumed because Jesus was consumed by you. And as a result, you have bold access to God's throne. The veil that separated the most holy place has been torn. And now you don't come fearful, but with boldness to the throne of grace. And this is what happens when you pray. It is a sweet smell to God. It's like, God, you know when you walk in the house and someone, your, your wife or your children have been baking cinnamon buns? 
Like you never get tired of that smell. It just, your heart will leap for joy. There are cinnamon buns awaiting me. And so often, I think, I know in my own prayer life, so often it just short circuits and I quit praying and I become dull because I think God's just tired of hearing from me. It's a sweet smell. No more do I get tired of smelling cinnamon buns when I walk in the door than God gets tired of hearing the sweet aroma of his people praying, rising right up to his throne room. And we should remember We should remember that now that we've become the dwelling place of God, we don't have to come to a special place to pray. But we pray in the name of Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul tells us, man, praying at all times with the Spirit and all supplication. You have direct access. And the Father just loves this. And the other thing that keeps me from praying is sometimes I think God's just tired of hearing from me. Jesus is like, look, just be like this nagging woman and just keep asking until he gives to you. Be impudent in your prayers. Keep asking. He loves that smell. He's like, oh, well, that smelled good at first, but it's like uh, socks on a teenage boy. After a while, it starts to sink. No, this is always the delight of the Father. It always smells good when his people pray. And so pray and pray and pray impudently and begging God until he moves his hands because this is the promise you have in Jesus Christ. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. So when God moves his hand, when God moves his hand, it's because he has smelled something Sweet. Your cries, no matter how much you have longed and begged God for something, they have not gone unheard. They have risen to his room. He may not have answered in the way that you want, but know this, they have risen as something sweet to him that he delights in. May have given up, just doesn't care. He cares. Just smelling it. So it's the sweetest thing I smell. Keep asking. I'll, I'll move when it's good for you. And I'll move with all of my power as the king who sits enthroned above the cherubim. Let's pray. Father, as we have uh, come, we've come asking you to work. We have come expecting you to wield your sword on our hearts. Some of us may be cut so deeply today that we are crying out of what must I do to be saved. May the truth of the refuge of Jesus Christ as our hiding place be met with the truth that we are more broken than we ever dared dreamed. Hear our cry. Make us a people who send up sweet aroma to you in abundance. For we have access with boldness through the blood of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.